Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. This is Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm here with one of my longtime mentors, Dr. Bill Flick. Dr. Flick, thanks for joining me on the episode today. I was wondering if you could just give us a brief kind of summary of your training and your current practice setup. Well, my training, I'm a graduate from the dental school at the University of Illinois. I did my residency uh, under the program that was a combined University of Illinois Cook County Hospital with Danny Laskin immediately following graduation. And then I was in the Air Force for a couple of years as an oral surgeon, private practice, and have always been a part-time attending for every year I've been out, except for one, in some kind of uh, oral surgery or dental school program. That's incredible. And what was the motivation behind that to, to always be in academics to some degree? I guess I, I probably sh- should have been in academics rather than a private practitioner, but somehow I got made an offer to go into private practice, which at that time sounded very good. So I went that direction as opposed to pursuing an academic career. It was unfortunately taking what was uh, seemed to be the, the, the best path at that particular time. Okay. The next question is for during my training, you were definitely one of the best mentors I had, especially when it came to private practice oral surgery. But I just wanted to ask, you know, what are some things you've learned over the years as far as how to teach residents in that surgical setting? Because it's unique. You know, it's not like teaching in a classroom. Actually, I think it's a lot more challenging than teaching in the classroom. There is this tendency to want to jump in and demonstrate and you have to guard against that because the uh, resident or student really only learns if it's their hands actually doing the work. That, that is the difficulty with clinical t- teaching. And to find that the right mix is uh, different for each individual student or resident. And is that, was it hard at first to be able to stand back and kind of let them do it or how how did it progress for you no definitely it, it's one of the challenging things that i'm not sure that i've ever that i could say i've actually mastered the the technique yet because there's times when i regret and say hey i should have jumped in and done this and then there's other times that i think uh, oh gee i i should have let this the student do this because i'm not sure they really got it yeah so I, I don't have a magic answer for that. It's a individual uh, 
case by case uh, experience and you try to feel as you're going along what's the best way to to intervene for that particular situation got it okay and then in regards to your words of wisdom for maybe those guys who are in private practice you know want to give back to the profession um you know maybe both the person who kind of wants to teach but doesn't know how to and then the person who isn't really interested in teaching but still wants to give back to the profession what do you say to those guys uh you have to jump at whatever opportunities are available to you whoever could benefit from your what you have to offer and then you have to be um, persistent and you have to stick with it i have seen a lot of uh, practitioners try to teach part-time in the dental schools and in residencies and i think they lose out because they soon get very frustrated and just say well i'm going to find a different venue i think if you find one that you can all make work for you stick with it don't don't jump from location to location because it is a slow process but the institution the personnel all have to get to know you they have to get to understand what you have to offer and that only comes with time since you're only coming there on a limited basis it takes a long time to get get that feel and that feedback okay that's good advice i like like what you're saying there in regards to uh, well i was going to say you know bring up the fact that it seems like there's several people who i guess both it goes both ways but that there's the guy who gets into academics and is kind of turned off by all the bureaucracy and the red tape not making much money and then they leave and then there's the guy who goes into private practice and you know feels like it's just a grind every day and then they switch over to academics how how do you reconcile that or how have you been able to stand the test of time in academics you know with all that sometimes red tape and the not not maybe the compensation isn't great and all that stuff yeah that's that's a, a, an excellent point is and one one thing that i i find you get very frustrated with as a part-timer you want to move things along and they don't move yeah and since you're really uh, a guest in the environment you're not the the driver and the mover it's hard to sit back and and think that people actually have any respect or appreciation for what you're doing because you you really don't control the environment the, the full-time people are the people that are in control and that's the biggest frustrating thing i think by trying to be a part-time academic because they, they often look upon you as expendable as uh, not particularly interested if you were particularly interested they they assume that you would want to be a full-time academic and yeah that's a good point i didn't really think about that kind of aspect or that point of view maybe that you have you know from my standpoint as as your student it was very very helpful i think for me to learn from someone who had been in private practice for many years or at least 
you know, was doing that on the side because you gave me so many good tips and experience, mostly on how to communicate with patients and how to deal with the routine dental alveolar implant stuff, which has been invaluable, you know, to my career. But I guess that's another question is, you know, how does academics balance that? Because many guys go straight from school into academics and they never have that private practice, you know, experience. And maybe they don't have that, uh, that teaching, you know, that you could bring when you're doing both. Okay. No, I think that is a, a good observation there that many full-time academics do not bring with them any kind of practical experience from being in the private setting or environment. And that that is a point. And that's where I actually, I think you find that the part-time uh, people who get involved with academics, what that's where, what they have to offer. You know, they try to be that source where you can give a little bit of background from the experiences that you've gained in private practice. Because as an example, the full-time academics, it's all about accomplishing the procedure the way it should be done. And in the practicality in the real world, it's doing what the patient wants to have done and trying to compromise what you can do to make both ends meet. That's a good point. Yes. It's, so maybe the answer is the you know, the, whoever's calling the shots, the program chair, you know, needs to make sure they're bringing in people from different backgrounds so their students get those exposures. I think that's good. And I think many uh, really uh, good program chairs, they recognize the, that subtle benefit that the part-time faculty can bring with them, that hands-on experience of dealing in the real world, as opposed to being so procedure-oriented, which most academicians, full-time academicians are. They're looking at the procedure and not how to manage the patient to that extent. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, and, and switching gears to more clinical stuff, are there any you know, clinical, I guess you could say, pearls or things you've learned or changed in the way you practice routine oral surgery over the last couple of years? Wow, you're, you're getting me at the end. You, you realize that I have moved into full-time academics now for the last, what? Yes. few years. I've, I've been out of the private practice world, so I've sort of left that behind and tried to forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. No, is, is there a specific area that you're that you're thinking about? I mean, I think. Well, I always look to you for more dental alveolar. You know, things that you're looking for on a Panorex, ways to take out third molars, conversations to have about complications with implants. So mostly that routine private practice stuff that that you helped with. Well, I, the the point. The private practitioner has to to really get comfortable with is talking to the patient and speaking at the patient's level. Yeah. I think too often many practitioners speak to the patient as if they're speaking to a knowledgeable colleague, and that goes right over the heads of many patients. And then because they don't really understand it, they interpret it as to what they want it to be. 
whether it actually is that way or not. And that's where some of the misunderstandings come into play. So the, uh, I think you have the responsibility as the practitioner to try and bring yourself to the level of the lay person and understand what their wants and desires are. I know you, you would like to get all excited about being able to use that small amount of available bone for your implant and maximizing it and all the steps you're going to do to do that. Patient doesn't really care about that. What, what they care about is, are you going to get an implant in here that's going to make me show off my nice, nice white pearly teeth? So, Right. <laughs> exactly. There's two, you know, separate goals that we, we both have and we have to learn how to meet and get those together. Yeah, I really like that point that you bring up uh, as far as communication goes, because in oral surgery residency, we're very much taught the lingo. And, and you know, we say, for example, simple things like you say third molar, not wisdom tooth. You know, a, a dentist says a wisdom tooth, an oral surgeon says third molar. We, we don't say an upper tooth, we say a maxillary tooth, you know? And sometimes it's hard to not say that when you're talking to a patient, you know, it's hard to kind of say, okay, we're, we're going to remove your upper tooth or whatever, because I catch myself saying the oral surgery lingo and the patient's looking at me like I'm speaking a foreign language. No, you, that's, that's a very good observation that you've made there often. And, and we, it just goes by us as practitioners. We, we often think that we're explaining things comfortably to the patient when in reality, the patient doesn't want to say, what did you mean? You know, yeah. they, they just say, okay, okay, I'm, I'm just not that smart. I'll let it go by. <laughs> right. And, that, and that's not our goal. It's not to no, show no. smart we are. Yeah. It's to make sure that they know what's going on and that we're all on the same page. Sure. So, for sure. Okay. And then just in regards to teaching, again, any other pearls you have for maybe younger guys going into academics? Well, I think it, there again, it is simply getting, finding the space or the, the place where you want to, to get involved and sticking with it. Okay. Don't, don't just get frustrated if it doesn't work out right. You know, it's the long term that you're, you're in the, the game for. And the opportunities and the, the setting is not always exactly what you want the first time that you start doing this. Try to make the best of it. Uh, try to get out of it what you want as far as teaching, but uh, don't give up. Stick to it. I like that. Probably easier said than done in some scenarios, but... Well, well it is. And actually, one of the things that I think... As private practitioners, we forget about all the red tape that's associated with the academic world, and yeah. we forget how to play that game. It is, it is a bit of a game. Yeah. When, you're, when you're a part-timer, you're on the outside looking in, and you do have to observe you know, who all the role players are and how to interact with them, what their needs are, and then try to offer what you can to make their program their training program you know up, up better what what you see that they're missing that you have to offer and try to make it clear to both the uh, the faculty that you're working with and to the residents you know what you could possibly achieve for them 
Yeah. Okay. And then my question for you is, so I had uh, your old co-resident, Alan Felsenfeld, on the podcast a couple months ago, and he, you know, said, oh, that's so great. You learned from Dr. Flick. He's awesome. Do you have any good stories that, that come to mind about oh, <laughs> working back in residency with Dr. Laskin and Dr. Felsenfeld? Well, I, I, I can't. Gee, that's so long ago. But of course, Alan and I were perhaps polar opposites when we were residents. You know, he was, I'm the slow, methodical, do things step by step. And he's the um, get in there, let's do it. You know, and I, I learned a lot from his, his style and, and approach, yeah. particularly when it comes to. Uh, to teaching. He was always the individual who was uh, pushing the envelope and trying to, to make both uh, his fellow residents and even the attendings, you know, work for what they were doing. No, I, I certainly enjoyed working with Alan, and I'm sure he, he left you with a lot of good pearls of uh, wisdom as far as the academic setting. Yeah, I will say that we got on the topic of instruments because he said, you know, one of his pet peeves is when he sees residents or dental students not using the correct instrument, you know, for, for example, to take out a tooth. And I said, oh, yeah, that, Dr. Flick kind of instilled that in me. For example, you know, I don't use the, the 150 to take out a maxillary molar. I use the 89 or the 90, you know, depending on which tooth it is. And he he just thought that was so great that we were using appropriate you know anatomic forceps that fit the tooth and oh really wow I <laughs> I didn't think that was that unique <laughs> so I, that is a point that we do see a lot that the improper use of instrumentation and I, it's interesting that you felt that was helpful to you uh, but that, that's a common uh, teaching. I think uh, process that everybody who's involved with academics on a clinical setting needs to follow is watch the residents and uh, or the students because they will misuse instruments and then they they forget to what the benefit of the the well made and designed instrument is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because you can take out teeth with the rongeurs, right? You you could just grab a hold of any forceps, but it, it seems, you know, it, to me, it's just so much more valuable to use the right instrument to least amount of trauma to the patient. You know, I don't know. I think that was something you left me with was. Well, and, and I'm always amused because I do run across colleagues who in a very uh, bragging sense always say, oh, I can take out any tooth in the mouth. I just need an elevator and an upper universal. <laughs> yeah, you can, but that's not the the best way to do it. And what we need to try and impart to residents is the best and most efficient way to do it. But, yeah, exactly. Well, to end the podcast, we end every podcast with five rapid fire questions. Uh oh. <laughs> so, question one is: What is the best book you've read in the past year? Wow. Any good books you've read? Other than Peterson's, I know you feel obligated to say that for Dr. Maloro. 
<laughs> Actually, I'm not sure I've looked at it much this year. <laughs> You're talking academic books, right? Any book, any book uh, that helps you. Actually, I've I've been into the pharmacology books lately. Okay. And I'm looking up here at uh, Yagella, and I still keep going back to that and wish that I could master that. Yes. Textbook. It's it's all always a surprise when I open it up, and I guess maybe it's because I I'm involved with teaching pharmacology so much in the dental school that I'm I'm into that. But the that textbook I think is certainly one of the better ones that everybody should have in their armamentarium, along with the, the local anesthesia textbooks by Malamed. You know, I've probably been using that quite a bit as well. Oh, that's great. Dr. Yagella was one of my professors at UCLA, and it, he was awesome, just a great teacher. Next question is, what non-oral surgery thing that you've done in your past, maybe it's a hobby or something, has helped you with your oral surgery skills? Ah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> what non-oral surgery thing? Is there anything outside of oral surgery that translates into oral surgery and has helped you as a clinician? Well, yeah. I mean, I I started off in in this business as a um, medical laboratory tech. I was I worked my way through college doing that in the summer and during vacations and breaks and. Okay. I think that gave me a lot of insight into the medical management of patients, uh, much more so than people who were not afforded that experience. And I still refer back to that experience in day to day, you know, when I'm evaluating patients and looking at them. And uh, that, that probably was one of the biggest benefits that I've had outside of oral surgery which has helped to mold my career. Got it, okay. Next question is what forceps do you use to remove tooth number five? Tooth number five, I use a 151 AS. Okay, what is or that? Or AX depending on who the, the uh, manufacturer is. What's the difference between the regular and the AS? Well, the AS is the one that has the notch and the the grooves in the uh, the beaks. They're not smooth. Okay. Some people call it a chucus modification. I've heard other names applied to it, but since okay. Dr. Chucus was from the Chicago area, I commonly refer to it as that. Chucus, okay. You don't use the ash, right? <laughs> no. Definitely. I'm not a big ash person. And yeah. I, I actually almost always step back when I see a student or resident pick up the ash because I know we're going to end up having to take out the roots separately because somebody who's inexperienced uses the ash to pop crowns off with, of course. Because you get a little bit more leverage than what you need. Oh, uh, yes. You, the leverage is just so strong. You have to be very careful with the ash for sure. Right. Okay. And then which one person has influenced your oral surgery career the most? Wow. Well, I, I would have to say that it was my program director, Felix Lawrence. 
Okay. I'm not sure if you've met Dr. Lawrence. He's he's still down in I think practicing at Meharry. Oh wow. Is uh, the program director there? But even though our program was technically under Dr. Laskin, it was Dr. Felix Lawrence who was our day-to-day chief over at uh, County and who we learned the most from. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I thought, you know, it gave a lot of good advice. There's, there's so many, I think, private practice surgeons out there who, you know, want to give back to the profession, who want to have some degree of influence in academics. And so I think what you're saying was very pertinent to, to that. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity, and I, I hope it hasn't been too much of a drag for you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeons Talking Shop. If you are practicing oral surgery or are in the oral surgery field and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed on this podcast or feedback regarding an episode that was already aired, please do not hesitate to email or call me. Thanks again for listening.